0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. I'm here with Paul Prescott, and we will be having our friend Matt Carp on uh, at around 6:30 p.m. ET to talk about his new article in Jacobin, which is on the resurgence of partisan identity politics and other types of identity politics uh, at times of extreme economic inequality. He draws parallels between the first Gilded Age and our current Gilded Age. um, And I think that's going to be a really great talk. So definitely stay tuned. Um, But before we get to all of that, I do want to quickly mention, um, of course, yesterday we uh, got the verdict back on the Derek Chauvin trial. Derek Chauvin, of course, is the Minneapolis police officer who was convicted of uh, murdering George Floyd. And, um, you know, I I just want to say to me when the verdict came down, um, I I was overwhelmingly relieved. Um, I thought it was a huge step forward. Uh, I probably don't have to remind, you know, very many people who are watching the Jacobin channel that I think something like over 98% of police killings uh, don't result in a criminal charge, let alone a trial and conviction. So to hear that Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts, uh, including the most serious, uh, which, which I believe was second degree murder. um, Again, this is, this is, Almost unprecedented. It's it's really unusual, um, and I definitely think that you know those of us who are uh, who uh, you know want to stop police violence should definitely count this as a win. Um, now that said, you know when I was kind of reading the coverage around the trial and uh, you know looking at what different people were saying yesterday, um, I did notice a lot of people uh, on the left saying you know. This is not justice. Uh, Some people would say we're saying things like this is accountability, but it's not fully justice. I believe Cori Bush said something which, you know, along the lines of this is not justice because George Floyd is not alive. Um, And, you know, I definitely I hear that. I I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, You know, one police conviction alone is not going to reverse All of the police violence that we've seen thus far. Um, It is also, unfortunately, not going to alone be a deterrent to police violence in the future. Um, So, this is definitely, this definitely continues to be an area of concern for those of us on the left. Uh, But, you know, Paul, I wanted to get your thoughts as well, um, because, like I said, like my immediate reaction yesterday was just one of overwhelming relief. Um, So, I'm wondering if you felt the same way or if you, uh, like, what are your thoughts on what transpired yesterday?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely shared your thoughts in terms of, I mean, the relief and just feeling like, you know, this this was the obvious thing that, that should have happened. And, you know, and and I hear what people are saying in the sense of like, this should be so simple. You know, we, mm-hmm. we had the video, the guy, the guy was clearly murdered, you know, so I guess I get on the one hand, we shouldn't celebrate for what should be a simple case of, you know, determining that this, this guy was murdered um but you know i think on the other hand sometimes i think most people understand that you know like i think most people get it they know that this is not going to be the end of police brutality and racism um Mm -hmm. so i think it is good to kind of claim a victory and and again victory is not in the long-term sense or in the, the broadest possible sense but i think like as a you know as a movement and the movement that's been around uh you know criminal justice and police brutality i think it is important to like say to people, you know, this is, it's possible to change things. And this is one small example of that. Um, And, you know, look, I've been critical on this show, as people know uh, about the Black Lives Matter movement, but it's worth saying, like, I I just don't think we wouldn't be here really talking as much about police brutality. I don't think the spotlight would be on policing if it weren't for that movement. And I think that's worth saying. And I think, um, you know, it's worth claiming this as like, you know, this is a great example of, you know, uh, you know, holding police to more accountability and getting some measure of justice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Um, I, defi- I I also wanted to ask you about the question of police reforms. Uh, I know that this is something we've talked about in the past. Um, I, you know, this is a very fraught issue on the left, I feel, right? Because, uh, you know, reforms are associated with a kind of liberalism, I think, Uh, this idea that if you uh, just simply introduce more body cams, or you know, you uh, ban no knock warrants, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of disagreement about how far that those kinds of measures go, Uh, you know, obviously, like sensitivity training for police officers, like lots of people on the left are critical of that. Um, There's, there's, again, not much evidence that that makes much of a difference. Um, So do you do you see do you see any worthwhile reforms right now that we could be pursuing?
1: Yeah, I mean, and just to like back up for a minute, I mean, it's kind of yeah. interesting because you know it, there really is not a consensus on this question within the left, and I mean the left in a, a very broad term, including well, progressives or, or whatever. Like um, mm-hmm. people kind of talk about it, like there is a consensus, but you hear very different things. I mean, some people are very you know, clear on saying, look, the system can't be reformed. Like you just, they, you just can't. And they'll say, you know, we've been trying and this stuff keeps happening. And mm-hmm. then there are others who are, and, and including organizations that have been working well before Black Lives Matter emu- emerges as a movement that is pushing for a very specific set of reforms. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there is kind of this weird tension, including some people that will kind of, depending on when you talk to them, will say both versions of that. Um, so I think it is an interesting question of like, you know, are we pushing for certain reforms or are we saying like, no, you know, that the really only reform is to to take away funding. But and I know I think I, I said this in a chat that we were in, you know, I hate to sound like this is going to sound like very Elizabeth Warren E and uh, wonky, but and I totally get it where it's like, you know, you keep these horrific videos keep coming out. And when you see mm-hmm. them, like you can't help but think like. How how the hell do you do you reform something so terrible? But you know when people say, "Well, we've tried this and it hasn't worked," I, mean, I think a lot. And I'm definitely not the expert in this, but I think a lot needs to be done to look into like, well, actually, where have they tried some robust reforms? Like whether that's you know maybe more beat cops that don't don't carry weapons, um, mm-hmm. or you know uh, less less time in prison, or no mandatory minimums. I mean, there's a whole mm-hmm. slew of these reforms, and you know many. Part of this electoral wave of the left the last few years has actually included progressive district attorneys I mean mm-hmm. one of the most famous ones is in Philadelphia with Larry Krasner yep. and you know and they are definitely running on the idea that you can reform mm-hmm. um, do do meaningful reform so it is worth looking into more maybe there have been places and situations where they have been able to cut down significantly on police brutality through these reforms you know I see that as more of an open question but it's something we're going to have to deal with eventually because I think we're, we, and again, I'm seeing that the broad left is kind of continuing on as if there is not a disagreement on this. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of forces are saying, you know, we can't reform this and, th- and others are saying that we can.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, this question is not unrelated to what we opened with, which is whether the conviction of Derek Chauvin represents a type of justice, right? Like, obviously, the conviction of Derek Chauvin in and of itself is not enough. Um, however, and, and so we can say, we can similarly say that various piecemeal reforms, various policing piecemeal reforms and incarceration reforms that we've seen over the last several decades have not been enough. However, that said, um, a few years ago, there was at least one study that came out that looked at um, rates of police killings across the US. And this researcher basically found that police killings had been cut almost in half from the time, from between 1971 and 1985. So, like, that's huge. And, um, I think he looked specifically at the NYPD, which, of course, in the, in the 1970s was, like, at the heyday of just, like, its power and brutality. Uh, and I think there, there was some crazy statistic, like, in 1971, the NYPD had killed 93 people. By 1985, it was down to 11. And, you know, they shouldn't be killing anybody, of course, but that is a huge reduction. And I think that instances like this are worth studying. Now, that said, um, I believe in 2019, the NYPD killed around 10 people. So clearly, in the time between 1985 and, you know, now, um, it doesn't seem like much more progress has been made. Um, but I, but so it's, it's, you know, I think it's fair to say that perhaps the reforms that, you know, were put in place in the 1970s have kind of plateaued, or maybe they didn't go far enough. I think that seems clear. Um, But I mentioned this example, because the reforms that were enacted were things like that, that I think on the left, we often think of as like oh like what is this gonna do like it was stuff like increased training you know like every year you have to like relearn how to fire your weapon and like what to do with you know you have to like retake a firearm safety course um it was stuff like you know uh teaching teaching cops not that they shouldn't be like shooting at fleeing suspects or moving cars um stuff like that and you know Obviously, that didn't stop all of the police violence. And I'm sure there were many police officers who continued to violate, you know, those guidelines or those rules. Um, But it's it's not nothing that the number of police killings dropped by half. I mean, that's wild.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I do mean this sincerely. This might come off like I'm being an asshole, but I swear I'm not. And I'm just trying to think from the organizer's perspective. And like, you know, I haven't personally been involved in like police brutality organizing per se besides like you know showing up to demonstrations but it's like yeah. what what is the message if you're saying we can't reform this mm-hmm. it's hard I, I don't see what the message is as an organizer um right. you know and you know and, and it, it's not a message based on saying we think the police are going to reform themselves no I think it's a saying like we can pressure to push through a whole slew of reforms and I think you know from the socialist perspective I think those reforms need to be coupled with you know, other economic reforms that I think undermine the basis for, for so much of this as well. But I think as an organizer, it's always a question, like, if you're kind of saying there's not really hope, um, I don't know how you how you go about organizing um, around it.
0: Right, right. Um, so I guess I guess on that note, maybe let's switch <laughs> gears. Uh, but but this is also related to organizing um, or perhaps you could say related to hope. So I want to tackle this as well. Um, So this was something that you had sent to me, Mm -hmm. the uh, United Mine Workers of America, which is, of course, the uh, miners union, uh, famously based out of West Virginia. They recently uh, came out and said that they would endorse Biden's green energy plan, so long as he met a couple different provisions about uh, guaranteeing that the jobs, you know, the solar and green jobs that would be replacing the coal jobs would be good jobs. Um, So, Paul, tell us a little bit about uh, what what happened there um, and uh, whether you think that this marks, you know, a, a step in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it could be an interesting turning point. I mean, I think the key here is that can they deliver on the jobs that would be replaced and i think like part of the biden plan is like um you know providing you know um money for the transition for workers at their current salary and i think that's one step but i think the second step has to be the jobs that are replacing are on par you know with those jobs and um and Kay, i don't know if you can throw up the quote uh here from the article um but you know so as the same coal is still significant to the economy in coal-producing states like West Virginia and pays on average $75,000 a year, well above the median income. And this is the UMW president uh, Cecil Roberts saying, I have no doubt that President Biden wants to create good-paying union jobs, but currently the jobs that are being discussed here are not good-paying union jobs. They're a fraction of what a coal miner makes. Um, and so I think this is the the key here, like these jobs that we're placing um, – have to be of a similar weight scale. And I think anyone can relate to this. I mean, if you are making $75,000 a year or whatever in a union job, like it's very hard to go back from that. I mean, imagine going from that to $15 an hour or even $20 an hour, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think that's the challenge here. And so what I worry about is if this is not implemented right, it would really sour workers on this. And I think some of the other quotes in the articles kind of get into you know, at the end of the day, the workers are saying, like, look, I mean, if I'm in a desperate position, I'm going to take whatever job comes. And I think more and more workers and, and some of these unions are seeing the writing on the wall. Um, so it, it, it's encouraging that they're taking this step. And I think it's encouraging that the administration is talking about a real transition. But I think the key component is what are those new jobs. And I think this is why it's ideal for this to come about through organizing. I mean, we had Lara Skinner on recently You know, if there were a coalition from the beginning demanding that these new um, jobs have like project labor agreements or of a certain wage scale, that would be better. I mean, in a situation like this, it doesn't necessarily look like that's being organized and it's kind of relied on if Biden is going to force that issue, which I'm not I'm not sure he will.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I so, so I, I just want to add on to that, um, as you mentioned, we had Lara Skinner on a couple episodes ago to kind of talk about uh, some of these issues and how how uh, unions can be sort of front and center of the transition to green energy and. Um, and I, you know, something that came up a lot on that episode is the standard left line that there doesn't have it's 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 a false dichotomy jobs versus the climate, right? Like we don't have to choose between those two. That's always what people on the left say. That's what, you know, progressives and liberals say as well. And I think that's true or I would like that to be true. But in so many instances, um, I do do think that we, you know, as a broad left or like as progressives, really, really need to make the case for jobs. We can't just wish uh, we, we can't just like wish a green economy that has good jobs into being. Um, and, you know, recently this came up. Uh, the, the One of the co-founders of the Sunrise Movement, uh, you know, he tweeted some recent Bureau of Labor Statistics data uh, that, you uh, sh- basically says, as of 2020, the average wage of someone working in solar power generation is now slightly higher than someone working in oil or gas extraction. And then he writes, green jobs are good jobs. It's time for good jobs for all. Um, And to the Sunrise Movement's credit, you know, part of what they've been doing recently is campaigning for the PRO Act. They've been very vocal about their support for that. I think that they are genuinely committed to... uh, what we call a just transition. Now, that said, I also want to point out that Jacobin contributor Fred Stafford, uh, who's written about climate and energy for Jacobin, he then looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data and found that the reason why um, the reason why it looks like solar and wind jobs are on average higher paid than fossil fuel jobs is because there's more management in those fields. So that drives up the average. Um, he also pointed out that there are more like legal professionals in that, in, in those, those sectors, which also drives up the average. But if you look at just the, you know, construction jobs, they're still paying less than fossil fuels. And, you know, hmm. so that's, I think, something that is, just really important to point out because again you can sort of look at the broad picture and say oh well like it looks like green jobs are good jobs but like are they the green jobs that these displaced coal miners are going to be working in probably right. not
1: yeah and i think like this situation in west virginia i mean it shows the hope and the promise that i think if there is a concrete plan mm-hmm. like i think more and more workers will go for this and believe it um but i i think it really speaks to and I think this is also important for leftist candidates who are running for office or, or in office, I think, like, need to do the work. And I, I'm really on my Elizabeth Warren today, but they need to have a plan. And I think it really has to be a fleshed out plan. I think it's definitely good to say, like, yes, we're going to take care of workers, blah, blah, blah. But that has to be backed up with something very specific that I think mm-hmm. makes sense. And again, in the in the ideal sense, it's something developed with the workers affected, you know one of my frustrations honestly with bernie during the campaign and in the, in the debates was you know he actually on his website had a great just transition plan where he laid out you know we're going to pay workers at their current salary for five years all this stuff but he would never say it in a debate you know he mm-hmm. kind of just said vaguely and it would t- it would only take like two seconds to like lay out some of the specifics and i think that's the crucial part like there you know there really does have to be thinking of how would this actually work um and present it in a good way. But again, I think I'm hopeful that this is a good first step. (laughs) Damn. Yeah. I was going
0: to, I was going to say, Paul, you're a changed man. Uh, Quoting Elizabeth Warren multiple times, ragging on Bernie. (laughs) Wow.
1: I'm going to do a whole thing where I'm like, Oh, I'm just having a beer. Um, But, but yeah, but but, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that maybe this is a good first step. And again, I think like, you know, these a lot of these workers and unions are not stupid. Like they understand mm-hmm. that climate change is real. They understand where things are going. So I think that is, there's an opportunity to say, you know, we're, we're on your side, and here is a here is a viable plan to make this work. So, um, so yeah, I hope I hope the the jobs that come in in West Virginia are kind of on par with what mm-hmm. they had before.
0: I want to mention that. Um, Another interesting thing that kind of came out of this event where the UMWA sort of announced uh, their proposal and announced their support for Biden's uh, Biden's energy plan is Joe Manchin. This was the same event at which Joe Manchin came out and declared his that he would co-sponsor the PRO Act. Um, and I, you know, I had heard about Manchin kind of coming out in support of the PRO Act like earlier this week. Uh, and I think a lot of news outlets were actually a little like maybe maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose. I'm not sure. But like we're a little coy about the fact that he announced this with the mine workers uh, at their event. Like I read a couple different reports where it was just like Joe Joe Manchin announces at a press conference <laughs> that he now supports the PRO right. Act. Right. That's how
1: I first thought, saw it actually. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I'm not I, I don't know if the mine workers like single handedly, you know, told him to support the pro act. And he was like, I only take marching orders from you guys. I definitely will. Um, But I will say that. You know, again, it was their event, and um, supporting support for the pro act is in their proposal, uh, the one that right. they took to Biden. Um, so that you know, they include that as part of the transition that they would like to see. Um, and so I think that's interesting. And I also just have a hunch that uh, Joe Manchin is more responsive to the um the uh, the U M W A in West Virginia as much as I would like to think that you know tons of calls from New York and Philly D S A flipped him. I, I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean ultimately I don't know. I you know, I wouldn't necessarily assume that it wasn't the cause as part of it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. um but I I ultimately don't know what did. It. I mean or maybe just a combination of, of both, but um but yeah, I mean that that is that's encouraging.
0: Mm-hmm. Just a quick quick question. Do you think that there's hope for like Christian cinema or like any of those other any of <laughs> that other way well... getting on board?
1: I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even really think there was hope for Joe Manchin. I know, um, I
0: know. That's why I ask.
1: So yeah, I mean, I mean, the, I think, I think it all comes down to you know, like if these uh, politicians are tied enough to labor where they need labor and they understand that they need labor and in their areas they're fired up enough to be pushing for it. I think it's always possible. And again, I mean, I gotta give a shout out. DSA has made something like over a hundred thousand calls, um, and you know, I can't think that doesn't make any sort of difference uh, that kind of pressure and i think now that the focus is going to be zeroing in on on those two Mm -hmm. so you know i don't know i mean i've been pleasantly surprised a lot lately so i wouldn't wouldn't count it out i think it's going to be like an uphill fight though
0: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure um, all right. Well, in our final bit of you know news and politics uh, update, they, we have some new woke capitalism news, mm. uh, and that's a new course, thing every day. A new thing every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> there's a woke capitalism update like what every week uh, and uh, this one is kind this one has kind of been stretched out over this month uh, but what i am speaking of of course is the uproar in georgia over the new voting restriction uh, which of course are you know Pretty bad, uh, but this time we now have a slew of corporations that are also opposing Georgia's new voting restriction laws. Uh, those include, of course, Coca-Cola, Delta, I think uh, Major League Baseball has gotten involved. Um, and then, of course, recently, uh, like hundreds of corporations and CEOs and other kind of C-level executives took out a two-page spread in the New York Times Uh We stand for democracy. This, again, is all of our corporate friends uh, who oppose the new voting restrictions in Georgia. Um, And now, I, I don't know if you have been following this closely, but sort of predictably, Republicans have now come out swinging to say, you know, well, Now we don't like corporations. Mm. A few Republicans. Right. Um, And this is pretty classic. I mean, we had talked a few episodes uh, ago about Marco Rubio sort of tepidly offering support for the Amazon union because apparently Amazon was, like, getting too woke. A similar thing is happening here where uh, a handful of Republicans are now saying, like, well, we should really think about maybe raising taxes on corporations uh, if if they're going to go down the woke path. Um, And I... We do talk about this on the show quite a lot, um, but I'm interested. I mean, do you think the Republicans are actually serious this time? I just can't see any Republican, like no matter how populist they claim to be, uh, actually slashing corporate taxes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what gives it all away is that with Biden's infrastructure bill, which really includes a very measly tax increase on corporations republicans are not willing to vote for it not one republican is willing to on the basis of these tax increases right I mean, one thing that was kind of interesting the article gets into is like on a very local level you know certain republicans claiming they're considering eliminating eliminating certain specific tax breaks in certain industries i mean who knows if that will happen but i mean i this is not going to be a like a deep or long term trend in the republican party but i mean i think what's dangerous about it is that it this does allow them to posture as anti-corporate. And I think it's a very bad sign that the left is being outflanked by the GOP on attacking corporations. And I think it's just not a good look if it looks like they're fighting to end corporate tax breaks and the left is uh focused somewhere else. And I think, you know, like the these kind of impressions people get politically are often not accurate or fair. Um, right. But I think the, the, the danger here is that like, oh, the left is on the side of corporations being woke. Meanwhile, the right is calling them out for mm-hmm. maybe the average person that's not going to follow it that closely. And I think those impressions, even if they're false and not fair, can be very um, powerful. And I think mm-hmm. the longer they have to posture like this, it's just more dangerous for us. You know, and I don't know the, what that's going to pretend for the future or. And I think later, Matt will kind of bring in some of this, like what that's going to pretend for our ability to win back or win these voters that we need to win eventually. Um, If in their mindset, they're like, well, at least the Republicans are like play fighting with with corporations (laughs) a little bit. Meanwhile, the left is like loving the woke, woke corporations. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think it could be dangerous because they they're just buying time where they get to posture and aren't having to deal with like what their actual policies with with corporations are.
0: Yeah, and I, I think something that also muddies the waters is um so so first of all, you know, you have somebody like Bernie Sanders, and I don't think that at this point anybody is gonna convince voters that Bernie Sanders like is into woke corporations. But there are Democrats who are actually rushing yeah. to embrace the woke corporations. Um, and I think that that is something that is extremely troubling right. to me. And of course, I mean, we, l-
1: and that's what's going to get out on CNN and MSN. Right. You know what I mean? And, and that's right. what's going to, I think, f- frame this impression from the average voter that it's like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, well, right. we know Democrats are a corporate power, but it's going to be associated now. No, it's the far left that, you know, this is mm-hmm. their goal mm-hmm. is is woke capitalism.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. So there's there's the danger of this kind of, you know, mischaracterization of the left, as you're saying. Uh, But you had sent me an article from The Washington Post about uh, Joe Biden meeting with Goldman Sachs, Bank of America uh, leaders and other business leaders, literally after the corporate, the Georgia corporate turn uh, or the Georgia corporate outcry over the new voting restrictions. Joe Biden and other Democrats literally see this moment as an opportunity to be like, hey, well, like, what if we worked with you? What, right. what if we worked with you guys, corporations? Right. You know, and um, you know, uh, Stacey Abrams, of course, deserves credit for her organizing in Georgia and you know, fighting for voting rights. Um, but she has been very friendly, of course, to these corporations that are coming out against uh, against the voting restrictions. You know, and she has not. She she talks a lot about democracy, but I have not heard her say a word about, uh, you know, how unchecked corporate power is also undermining democracy. I mean, I haven't, you know, Stacey Abrams had a uh, recent op-ed in USA Today. Um, let me read a quote from there. So she is talking about uh, people calling for boycotts of Georgia companies, and she says she she rejects those and she says, Bring your business to Georgia, and if you're already here, stay and fight. Stay and vote. I appreciate the public positions taken by MLB, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, and hundreds of other companies. Even more can be done to help stop these bills or raise awareness. And then she goes on to, you know... Go through a laundry list of what corporations can do to raise awareness and, and kind of fight the spread of these anti-democratic bills. And to be clear, these bills are anti-democratic. However, so is Citizens United. Uh, right. So I, I don't like that the conversation seems to have uh, coalesced, or I, I don't like that a group of Democrats have coalesced around flexing corporate power to, you know, advance an ostensibly democratic agenda.
1: Right. Yeah. And of course, like this is totally to be expected from Biden that he would take this opportunity. I think he would be meeting with these corporations anyway. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we know someone like Bernie is a rare breed who's going to be very clear on polarizing the situation and being like, I'm sure Bernie, you know, if he had to choose between corporations being for or against the, the bill, he's glad they're against it. But he's clear on like. My base that I want to organize to fight for voting rights is not corporations. You know they're they're not the they're not really we're not going to be on the same team on this. Um, but you know he's not common. I hope there's more people like him. But again, it's just troubling that this is now going to be like the impression of this is what the left is. You know this is who mm-hmm. they're aligned with. And you know in that article, the Washington Post one. I mean, one thing that was just very sad to just show you like, what a fuck situation we're in, is the fact that, you know, the, the 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 corporate tax rate before the Trump tax cuts was 35%. He lowered it to 21. And now mm-hmm. Biden's talking about going to 28. So we're not even mm-hmm. catching up to where we were. And most of the corporations recognize this and they're like, well, you know, we prefer not to have the tax cuts, but, like, it's fine. Like, we know, yeah. you know, like, we're, yeah, we don't need to get too upset about it. Like, and it's like a net win. I mean, it's literally one step forward, two step backwards, you know, right. and right. they recognize it as a net gain. Um, and and it's just very sad. <laughs> like, yeah. And, you know, and, and of course, Biden gets the credit of like, oh, he's raising taxes on the rich again, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wow, we've we've literally went halfway back to where right. we were under Obama. That's where we are.
0: right. Right. Um, I want to wrap that up by reading a Barney Frank quote that appears in that article. Um, I thought this was particularly damning. Uh, so he he said, he says, the business community, responsible elements of the business community have figured out it's in their interest to help diffuse angry populism. They're not afraid of Joe Biden. Biden does not say they're bad people and that's a large part of it. But they're also not as afraid of what Democrats will do. They're much more afraid of the Republicans. Uh, and just to echo what you said, I think that's very sad. I mean, if the Democratic Party is going to be any kind of party for working people at all, corporations need to be terrified of them.
1: Right. Yeah. Well said.
0: <laughs> so I guess on that note, uh, maybe this is the perfect time to bring out our guest Matt Karp. Matt, of course, is a frequent, a not not unfamiliar face on the Jacobin Channel. Uh, but Never I believe this is it, who is this guy? Uh, some random person who is
2: <laughs> just another bearded Brooklynite. Yep,
0: exactly. Right,
2: city slicker.
1: Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, poor um, rural Philadelphia. I'm playing Sorry. exactly.
0: <laughs> um, in all seriousness, Matt Carp, of course, a Jacobin contributing editor. Uh, he is also associate professor of history at Princeton. He's the author of the book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. And we are going to talk to him, uh, among other things, about his recent essay in Jacobin, which is The Politics of a Second Gilded Age, which came out in the Winter Print issue. So again, Matt, welcome to The Jacobin Show. What's new?
2: what's new I'm i'm just embodying uh as i do every day embodying all of the changes in our politics that i uh ostensibly uh rail against as a <laughs> as, as a as a professorial brooklyn socialist so i'm just living that paradox uh like uh like we all are i
0: think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right gotta yeah, live your truth um <laughs> So talk to us about the Gilded Age, uh, both the old Gilded Age and the new Gilded Age. Uh, in your article, you draw a connection between, uh, you know, the Gilded Age of yore uh, and the kind of politics that we see unfolding now. Um, and I think that most people are probably pretty familiar or familiar with the Gilded Age, the first Gilded Age, as this moment of extreme economic inequality, hence the name. Uh, and of course, lots of commentators and politicians have referred to the time that we're living in now as the new Gilded Age. So what is the connection between the two time periods? Uh, and, and what's most interesting about politics, that you, electoral politics, uh, between these two eras?
2: yeah i mean I, I I just sort of hit on that analogy as a as a mostly as almost as a sort of provocation uh to sort of think beyond the the typical sort of fare that we get in in sort of most liberal media where everything is analogized to uh historically to the second world war or the civil war those are the kind of you know history channel th- things that we're working with they're both very useful uh, uh you know to inspire or to in, in some cases discipline uh you know various forms of left politics i'm of course guilty as anyone of using various civil war analogies uh, again, <laughs> and again and again again and i will not stop doing that <laughs> i don't think but um thinking about 2020 i mean the things that jumped out at me when you know, really in a lot of ways, looking at the numbers um were uh the extent to which this was a, you know, there were three things, right? This was a really high turnout election. People uh, you know, ran to their ballots in 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 in, in this Trump-Biden election, which we had we had kind of, especially on the left, had kind of imagined and sort of scoffed at as like the sort of almost a caricature of um, an unpalatable, out of touch, anachronistic, these two ancient dinosaurs like stumbling towards the White House, um, you know, clearly unfit for. For the office, you know, mentally, ideologically. And yet, you know, the Trump Biden election got far more voters than any election with Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or any of the sort of dynamite political talents of our era. Um, you know, it, it brought things back. I actually have to go back 100 years to get up to, you know, 67 percent turnout. So something's going on there. And uh, it, it, that high turnout, uh, you know, which broke a lot of the narratives that we had been working with um, and uh, combined with what other pe- a lot of people have observed as really intense negative partisanship, where this mm-hmm. turnout is driven primarily not by um, a kind of adulation or a deep identification with a movement or even a set of, or certainly a set of ideas, but with Opposition and kind of a, a, a deep seated uh, antagonism towards uh, the other guy, uh, which isn 't a new thing in American politics, obviously or any form of politics it 's always about you know friends and enemies but uh, the negative end of that uh, of, of that stick has really grown grown larger and heavier mm-hmm. uh, in recent years and then um, uh, and there's you know various ways to look at that and measure that. But then uh, then the third thing is the thing that, that is uh, like my kind of, uh, as I said, my kind of co- self-contradictory beat, which is about class D alignment and how the Democratic coalition keeps getting, you know, uh, keeps getting further and further removed from its New Deal era or even mid 20th century working class base or even frankly, it's 2008 working class base, which was really sort of the point of the article is that, you know, even leaving aside this long term change away from the Democrats as a party. Uh, where most working class people, uh, which most working class people supported. Um, uh, you don't even have to talk about the difference between Biden and FDR or LBJ. You can just talk about the difference between Biden, the Biden coalition and the Obama coalition, which were, uh, which is, you know, really significant and, and, and striking in places like Michigan, where, um, you know, Biden, where o- Barack Obama rolled up massive, you know, working class, uh, majorities in both in, you know, among black voters in Detroit and among, uh, you know, white uh white workers in the sort of deindustrializing uh you know old auto and um uh, industrial areas and biden uh didn't underperformed on, uh, on in in both those groups of workers really dramatically uh and compensated by winning traditionally republican suburban professional class managerial class strongholds so you're mm-hmm. all familiar with this argument probably by now but Uh, I think uh, this is a really long-winded way to get there, back to the Gilded Age. But in other words, this three-part combination of basically intense politics, intense negative partisanship, high high turnout, intense negative partisanship, and a politics that's driven by culture, geography, uh, a kind of, in effect, partisan identity – Um, rather than, uh, anything to do with class in terms of the basis of the coalitions. It really reminded me nothing, like, like nothing of the 20th century, um, or even really the Civil War era in particular, but, um, the 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 electoral politics, not the larger social context, but the, just the, specifically the party system of, of of the of the of the gilded and to some extent the progressive era mm-hmm. now, the gilded age and some extent the progressive era in the in the turn of the century 1880s to uh, to around 1910. There's a new book by a historian named John Grinspan called The Age of Acrimony that uh, kind of uh, compiles this sort of um, this era together, uh, really hitting a lot of these same notes. And it's not that significant economic policy didn't happen or significant uh, class class politics were happening in an incredibly intense, embodied material way and in mines and on dockyards and in all sorts of this is the heroic era of, labor uh labor organization and anti labor violence but very little of that made its way into the electoral system and um to the extent that you know various party you know diff- different parties at different times supported different things none of none of that, uh, none of their positions on the tariff or their positions on uh, currency or any of the other kind of economic issues of that period um, really in terms of Democrats and Republicans translated into anything like a structural uh, economic change or anything like a class politics. And I think, I guess I think the failure and we're on a, we're on a, we're on a, you know, a steam engine train towards a similar set of politics, right? Where we have... Intense, feverish debate about a lot of issues and some economic policy, um, you know, significant economic policy differences between Republicans and Democrats. We don't need to pretend those don't exist. But decoupled from class politics, can those policy differences become structural changes, fa- fundamental changes? I'm very skeptical. Mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess I want to quickly follow up on that by, uh, noting, uh, something I really like in your article is you kind of zero in on certain districts to look at how they voted and what kinds of policies they supported to make your case about partisan identity and, uh, or, you know, partisan identity politics and also class D alignment. So you point out in various, you know, wealthy suburbs, I think Barrington, Illinois is probably, I think that's one of the examples you cite. You know, you see voters flocking to Joe Biden yet at the same risky, time cavalry
2: country sorry is <laughs> it
0: i mean totally yeah yeah, yeah. definitely um, but at the same time they're rejecting initiatives to tax the rich or to raise the minimum wage so you could say that they are you know voting blue but at the same time not backing kind of pro working class measures then on the other hand i believe the example you cite is sweetwater florida which broke for trump uh, or shifted to Trump, uh, but at the same time, you know, overwhelmingly supported Florida's uh, $15 minimum wage ballot initiative. Um, and and that's so interesting to me because, or I guess something that I'm wondering is, do you see an opportunity for the left in here or is this just a total disaster, this kind of like weird mismatch?
2: Yeah, it's very, it's very, very frustrating. Um, yeah. And I think on the, fr- on the front score, I mean, we can debate the different... You know political context for a lot of these initiatives, and there is you know some people will push back and say you know actually and in, in in you know depends on the depends on the on the and in the initiative, the state, the situation. You know some middle class voters do seem to be upper middle class voters do seem to be more willing in this Democratic coalition to support tax mm-hmm. increases, et cetera. Uh, but there's a lot of evidence that that willingness is is really capped, is limited, and is um, certainly not in my view, capable of supporting the much larger, more sweeping redistributive measures that we would need for anything like a Bernie-ish agenda, much less, you know, something beyond that. So um, that's a real problem that I don't think that the sort of new architects of 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 progressivism in this vein have really figured out. I think they're kind of deferring it uh, in a sense out of necessity. And this is where, you know, this is the, this is the, the the sticking point. It's not the case, unfortunately, that the left has a has a clear answer about how to get all those you know Sweetwater uh, Latinos to sort mm-hmm. of basically vote their class, or to get the you know the Upper Peninsula working class uh, white people to vote their class. We we've the Democrats have failed. The Democrats haven't really failed. They've. Done exactly what they wanted. You know Chuck Schumer, et cetera, has made it clear a hundred times. This is the coalition that that wing of the Democratic Party wants, precisely because it affords you know the the party a kind of stable voting base that isn't dependent on uh, on real economic redistribution, um, and yet will support the kind of you know um, you know piecemeal uh social reforms and 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 to some extent the the one step forward two step back economic changes that paul uh was discussing um but but um so they they're getting what they want we're not getting what we want but the problem is we don't have a clear answer about how to win back those voters and the mm-hmm. the harder truth that you know you just have to you just have to spit it straight here uh on on the jacob and youtube is that even our socialist candidates have, by and large, our great victor- victories, you know, Cori Bush, um, uh, you know, here in New York, um, you know, Jabari Brasport, who I campaign for, um, you know, these, uh, you know, work, you know, candidates who've won working class districts have largely won, at least at the primary level, by mobilizing more middle class, professional class, you know, younger voters. So um, it's it's not a it's not like we have the uh, we 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 have a a, um, a magic formula or, a, mm-hmm. or a, a silver bullet to do this. I think I, I do think though the first step would be recognizing that this is a problem and making this a priority rather mm-hmm.
0: than um, celebrating or yeah. And yeah. I
1: think part of that problem, you know, is that. It, it can't really be done purely through an electoral campaign or a series of electoral campaigns. Cause by their very nature, you're in this limited timeframe trying to quickly mobilize voters and you're always going to be wanting to mobilize people who are more likely to vote. Um, and again, it's not an argument of course, against elections and against doing primaries, but like there has to be another element to this piece. Cause we, we, we can't just be doing this through an electoral
2: campaign. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah.
0: I want to go back to the Gilded Age analogy because, you know, the first Gilded Age sort of famously ended when the progressive era was ushered in. And then, of course, we had the New Deal, which arguably marked the kind of like high period of class voting, at least in the U.S., uh, for a number of decades. Um, so I'm wondering if there's anything from that kind of transitionary period that you think can help sort of guide us through this like awful moment of Class D alignment right now.
2: Yeah, how do we run the New Deal again? Yeah, let's, exactly. Let's,
0: That's let, what let's I'm asking you. Paul,
2: Paul, <laughs> what Can we just thought?
1: do the good thing again?
2: I just want to yeah. do the good thing <laughs> again. Can we just stop making the bad stuff happen and make right. this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean. I I don't I mean, this is this is not where I this is my specialty as a historian. So I do think that, you know, I've been doing we've been sort of dabbling in various New Deal book clubs and and so on to try to make sense of this era, because I do think there are some answers there. And I think to some extent, even a certain class of, um, you know, uh, mainstream liberals and progressives are. Are coming around to this view. I saw Jamel Bowie, you know, his column. Who, you know, I, I don't agree with about about everything, but uh, he wrote a column, kind of actually lionizing the New Deal as a as a as a series of um, uh, as, a, as a sort of a political movement that not just that didn't just you know. Equalize the economy, but help save American democracy. So I do think that there are there are forces out there that are that are, that want to want to think about this that aren't just um on the on the the sort of the Jacobin left. But I think you know, look, if we have to be structural here for a minute, we have to be materialist. I'm I'm actually, as anyone who reads me closely could probably tell, I'm not a very good materialist uh, intellectually. But I think the the the, the conditions of our um of, of working class struggle today are just very very different than they were in the industrial era and i think that's not to say that it's impossible to organize workers in in warehouses or to or to organize workers at at, at you know in hospitals or to organize um um the different kinds of much more um atomized often and um, if not, you know, contingent, if not explicitly contingent and and sort of um, uh, really peripheralized, marginalized workers that make up most of the working class today. Um, but uh, it is a very different situation. So I don't think we can exactly expect to get um, the, the to, to, to sort of run that tape back. That being said, I don't I think it would also be a mistake to, to make the other to go too far in the other direction where people say, wait, hey, the the New Deal era is over. So let's let's forget about it. Let's actually drop the nostalgia for that kind of working class politics and just uh, forge an entirely new uh, forge an entirely new way forward that more or less is indifferent to huge sections of the existing working class, uh, you know, of, of, of the sort of traditional working class, which still exists, uh, in order, in order to sort of sustain this progressive momentum. I think that would be, uh, disastrous also. If if you've noticed, I answer most of your questions about what we should do by saying, well, here's something we shouldn't do. Uh, (laughs) but I guess this is where I get to, I get to do a little bit of, uh, happy dodging and saying as a historian, I, I don't, I, I'm not an organizer. Uh, you know, I support these movements, but, I don't have the answers uh, for, for, for how to, how to fix the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, why haven't you ushered in single-handedly a new, new deal, Matt? Right. <laughs> That's um, why we brought you on the show.
2: <laughs> yeah. Working on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, um,
0: oh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: Well, the,
1: well I was going to say, you, you know, you talk about in the article about, um, you know, class D alignment that this is not inevitable. It's a choice. And I mean, as you cite in the article as well, Class alignment is happening all over the world in these different labor parties, socialist parties, social democratic parties. The same process is happening. So, I mean, one could say if it's happening everywhere, this is inevitable. There's nothing we can do. So, Can you kind of talk about why you think it's not inevitable? And also, like, how is this playing out? How are the how is the Democratic Party leadership, you know,
2: making this inevitable? Well yeah, I mean I think that's a good question. This is the more most most sort of serious, you know, pushback I would say from, you know, from, you know, progressives engaged in electoral politics is to say, look, this is a transatlantic, you know, half-century long trend that has afflicted all sorts of, you know, socialist, social democratic, labor, working-class parties um in, you know, so many different contexts. And there's obviously truth to that. There are there are broader forces basically you know that have to do with the uh, the transformations and evolutions within capitalism you know uh, globalization automation um uh the particular political struggles of the 1960s and 70s which basically went capital's way uh and the weakening the consequent weakening of of labor unions etc pretty much everywhere so these are things that we have to contend in. we're born despite these sort of recent victories as, as, uh, as I squeak out uh, our recent victories in the Bernie era, we are still a generation born in the wake of just a mammoth defeat. So I think recognizing that is, is one starting point. So, you know, as I think I said, after Bernie's loss, you know, we're, we're finally strong enough to realize how weak we are. Um, and it's a long, long haul back. And so there are these massive forces arrayed against, you know, class politics, it, you know, in almost every context. And so I don't want to pretend that this is just about like Chuck Schumer's calculated malice or something like that. That being said, I think it's also true that these are artifacts of certain kinds of political struggle. And if you look at the numbers in different contexts, if you look at, say, how the difference between the Obama campaign and the, and the Biden campaign in the U.S., you see not just broader trends that are, that are working against class politics, but you see the calculated, you do see the calculated mouse of Chuck Schumer. You see the, the way in which, um, the sort of both, um, the, the political rhetoric of, and the, and the style and the kind of milieu of the democratic party, you know, from those ubiquitous, you know, love is love lawn signs that don't mention any material issue to, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, various positionings on, economic versus social issues to its um, to the extent to which it offers, you know, limp, but un, uh you know, essentially a pretty for, for the last, you know, 40 years, very un, either hostile, either hostile, direct hostility to labor or a very uh, soft support for it. You see all sorts of um, you see all sorts of ways in which these calculated decisions, both on the policy front and on the campaign trail on the on the politics front have produced this coalition that they want. Um, and and just because it also happens in in say the UK or elsewhere doesn't mean that it wasn't calculated there too that these weren't political struggles that were waged and 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 fought in these different contexts because you also see you know for instance if you look at the Corbyn campaign at least some of the polar of the sort of dealignment based on wealth was reversed by Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 which is a really striking thing in the context of you know 40 50 years of dealignment. And Obama in 2008, also there were twinkles of a different kind of uh, of a reversal, even in, in certainly in income polarization and to some extent in education polarization. Obama did really well with working class candidates of all races in comparison to say John Kerry, Al Gore, etc. And you know, I think it's time to I think we should think about to what extent he did well, not because he was a, you know, a Ivy League law grad, but because he uh, you know, which which he was because Obama himself was obviously not a working class hero. But to, to what to the extent to which that 2008 campaign really powerfully, you know, engaged in the theater of populist bottom up working in a sense a kind of um, not a not a socialist sort of working class politics, but a kind of the, the whole si se puede yes we can energy of that campaign. Absolutely drew its strength on um, an idea of mass democratic politics from below, which is very different from the Biden campaign. And I'm not saying that the aesthetics of the campaign are the are, are the things that deliver every vote, but Obama himself obviously a kind of embody the embodiment of an outsider, whatever his actual class position, whatever his actual um you know, ideology, which proved very centrist. But his uh, the the sort of the way in which he represented something else and something outside the mainstream is not hard to recognize. So this is an example. I, in a funny way, it's an odd example for the left because I I don't want people to think that I'm you know lionizing the 2008 campaign uh, specifically because it obviously you know was so many broken promises on 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 any number of levels, but. I do think there are things to learn about a certain kind of style of politics that says, wait a minute, there are different, even within our shrinking defeated world, there are different paths. There are different ways in which this can accelerate, or this can be uh, slowed down, or maybe in some cases, this can even be reversed, you know? And, uh, I do think that there are electoral lessons there.
0: I, uh, I, I want to follow that up by asking you about identity politics, uh, partisan identity politics is obviously sort of the main focus of your piece. Um, But I, I guess just for me personally, you know, I notice among a lot of the I guess you could say the liberal commentariat, there's often an assumption that partisan identity and racial identity, like have a large overlap, right? So like, after the 2020 election, you heard a lot of talk like, black women saved us or black voters saved us. Right. Uh, And after 2016, there was sort of the opposite where, you know, you heard a lot about white women, you know, selling out other women or, or, you know, the white working class, Uh, that's kind of race and class, but you know, the white working class or white voters got us Trump. Um, And so I, I guess, I was wondering if you could talk about how identity politics is sort of a different creature from class politics and why that is. And then follow up. Is there a connection between partisan identity and racial and racial identity like at all?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I I was sort of using, you know, sort of partisan identity in a slightly mischievous way um, because, you know, without sort of, you know, going head on at the kind of eternal identity politics question. But I mean, my, I mean, if you look at the numbers, obviously the trends. I don't think this is news, but it was already kind of clear in 2016, but it was especially clear in. It became really clear in in 2020 that. Um, you know, we know for a long time that the Republican Party has been primarily the backbone of the Republican Party has been uh, white voters and that non-white voters, by and large, do not vote Republican. That's been the case. That was the case when it was Romney versus uh, Obama. We didn't talk about it in those terms uh, for in, in the same way, at least as obsessively in the liberal media um, for any number of reasons. But that but that was even more true in 2012 than, than it was in 2016. We saw those numbers. And in 2020, that was even less true. So, you know, what's actually happening is, you know, in my view, if you demographically, if you look at the, the uh, and, and I'm not the only one to say this, this is, you know, something that, you know, liberal commentators like David Shore have talked about, that basically class polarization to an extent or education polarization is trumping um you know racial polarization because you have uh large numbers especially of Latino but to some extent uh Asian immigrant voters and to some extent in a smaller but still um you know noticeable way uh black voters moving away from the Democratic camp either to not voting or or to some extent with Latinos and Asians voting um for 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 Trump and for Republicans. So in terms of trends I think it's it's I think we're, we're past the point where we can simply, um, you know, describe our party system as being intensely more racialized than it ever has been before. That's that's just not true um, in terms of the, the, you know, the the sort of rainbow coalition that, that 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 Trump assembled. Now, of course, you don't want to overstate that. You don't want to. A, a trend is different from a from a flat reality. The truth is most non-white voters, most non-white working class voters did still vote Democrat. And the biggest problem that Democrats have, the biggest problem in class polarization is still the biggest chunk of working class voters, white voters who are are and are and also are trending Republican. So it's it's complicated to sort out. But my point about partisan identity politics is, is that this to to be honest, this, you know, alongside with this sort of education polarization or um, or, or, or class D alignment, um, this kind of. Um, uh, this kind of identification, the way in which, um, uh, you know, voters increasingly identify almost beyond um, their own specific personal identity, whether it's, you know, racial, ethnic, gender, geographic, religious, whether they identify with a certain sort of political brand or specifically against a partisan political brand seems to me really heightened in this era of natural, um of, of negative partisanship and that kind of you know that that's sort of like you know who who all that discourse of who can you or who can't you talk to uh as a trump voter um you know you know are we allowed to speak to trump voters on on the holidays you know do these are these people even um you know do they have material form for us or are they sort of raving animal zombies um you know this is just on the left center you see this but obviously it's true on the right too uh in terms of the idea that every you know Democrat is a is a is a raving um, you know Antifa um, you know terrorist and this kind of that kind of heightened partisan identity it's like I'm defined by not being a part of this um, you know loathsome other um, that operates almost strictly along the lines of, of like you know red versus blue to me that really really undermines. Um, the, the deeper we go in that territory, I really worry that that undermines the possibility of reaching out to those Sweetwater Florida voters, those working mm-hmm. class, you know, who said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I like minimum wage. I like the minimum wage. A lot of people I know would benefit from this. I'm voting for that. Uh, but the, the more we drive them, our, our kind of partisan machine drives them into being like, yeah, but I'm a Republican. I'm a I'm a Trump guy. The more that happens. Actually, the less likely they're going to vote for a Democratic initiative that's identified in partisan terms uh, with, with the Democrats, whatever its class content is. So that's dangerous on, on our on current trends. If thing, if if class realignment weren't happening, then partisanship would be great. If if the Democrats were becoming more and more working class, I would be you know thrilled about Democratic partisanship. I, I don't actually think partisanship itself is a problem, but partisanship in this context on these terms, I think, is dangerous.
1: And you've kind of already are starting to touch on this, but to follow up on that, can you explain the dangers of left wing and socialist candidates kind of leaning into this team blue partisan identity, um, even if it's good in the short term for fundraising, which I think is why they do it, and I know you're, you're not an
2: organizer, but how do left wing electeds break out of this? How do they stop doing this? Yeah, to be honest, that part of the that part of the piece is more targeted at the sort of at, 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 at um in my view, at like, you know, socialist or lefty, uh you know, the kind of post Bernie, uh, Bernie crat left uh, in electoral politics, because, I mean, the truth is um you know most democratic politicians are going to lean into partisanship that's that's our system and I'm, it, i am i'm not trying to say that we should bring back you know bipartisan posturing or 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 bring back um you know some sort of anti-political or anti-partisan uh you know sort of um uh you know the, the sort of the grandeur of 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 distance from these you know pox on both their houses kind of business but I think, so, but I think the the truth is for the, you know, the squad style politics, they've been, you know, playing, it's a tightrope, and I'm sure every single one of them would acknowledge this, that there's a tightrope between, in effect, working with the Democratic leadership and the Democratic brand, if you will, and kind of maintaining influence and sort of um, support from a lot of sort of, you know, intense Democratic partisans, um, uh, and, identify and, and sort of carving out some kind of independent identity and as, as a, as, as a, whether it's a sort of a left-wing identity or pref or, you know, or a, a sort of a working class uh, based identity or some co- sort of other. And I don't mean identity as in terms of individual identity. I mean, political identity, you know, what differentiates the Bernie, um, you know, the Krats from the Democrats, uh, et cetera. And to me, it's really risky for the strategy to basically be like, we just want everything that the Democrats say they want, but we just want more of it. And we are the most intense Democrats. And we show that by hating Republicans the most, tangling with Republicans the most, you know, organizing, all, deepening the sense in which all politics is, you know, who said what to who in a in a kind of, um, you know, feverish take and counter take cycle uh, between the two parties where, you know, you have the good guys and the bad guys and I think you did see a lot of this. This was really heightened after the Capitol riot, et cetera. Um, where, where that's the only thing, that's the only dividing line in, in politics. That's the binary. And when that becomes the only binary, then there's no distance between, there's no sense in which any kind of post Bernie kind of politics has any difference from Nancy Pelosi's politics. And look, I mean, I understand to some extent, like, this election just happened. You're trying to do things in a party that now has a really slender majority. Um, I, I do understand the tactical logic of leaning into that, but I think um, I think there are a lot of dangers associated with that strategy too that f- that basically make the left wing of the Democratic Party, in a sense, almost the most kind of um, de-aligned uh, po- portion of the Democratic Party. That, you know, in some ways, and I think if you looked at the numbers, to, to some extent, there, there there is some truth to that, that the progressive caucus... Um, um. You know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe that goes too far. I shouldn't say that because a lot of the new, you know, kind of professional class Democrats are in the new Democrat caucus. So I, I won't go there. But but I think basically it it puts um you know Bernie politics in a box that is in, in fact at the mercy of Pelosi and Schumer and. Um, I can see why you want to do that in order to claim victories and say, Hey, we helped get you your $2,000, like go for that. And I'm not saying that they should be, you know, completely hold their noses from this stuff, but, um, but I think there needs to be a concerted effort to sort of build a, uh, a, a political identity that is at least to some extent, independent from that, that puts, uh, you know, working class and, you know, left-wing economic, redistributive questions, um, you know, Medicare for all, jobs for all, to some extent, Green New Deal, you know, support for labor puts all of that as this is our political identity. That is actually we're way we're way more loyal to these issues than we are to uh, Team Blue. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a strange phenomenon how in
1: the last Gilded Age and in this one, when economic inequality is at its most extreme, culture war issues still rise to dominate political life. So like, I mean, what explains this? How does that happen when economic equality is so stark, it's staring you in the
2: face, but culture war is still where everything pivots on? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, a, a cynical explanation is that it sort of serves the 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 interests of the of the the, the short-term and maybe the long-term interests of the of the both the, the sort of partisan political leadership and ultimately the kind of you know capitalist ruling class, which has no problem kind of, you know, having a culture war between um, you know, Facebook and uh, you know, Shell Oil uh or or whatever, um you know, uh between between various sections of capital that seem to be like identified with certain kinds of progressive politics versus others that are, you know, cast as the villains you guys were talking about woke capitalism before. I mean clearly these, these very powerful forces in our society don't fear this, uh, nor do they fear, you know, partisan, um, you know, polarization around these issues. Um, so uh, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think it also has to do with, to what extent does the, you know, does the organized working class have the power to disrupt that paradigm? you know, and during the Gilded Age, they didn't, you know, they were being, they were too busy, you know, being murdered by Pinkertons, basically. And, uh, and also too divided by, you know, brutal, you know, racial and ethnic divisions, um, you know, within, with within themselves, frankly, which are a big part of that story, uh, and made, you know, working class organization very difficult in late 19th century America in some places, although there were also enormous triumphs that were only beaten down by the state. So, um, we're, you know, we're kind of in that position now, although, um, uh, although, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, union organizers aren't being, aren't being murdered. Um, the, that's the good news. The bad news is we probably have, um, you know, uh, are the sort of the the intensity of mobilization within, um, you know, uh, labor politics is not as not as fierce as it was, say, in the Haymarket era uh, in, or in the sort of the general strikes of the 1870s. We're, we're not we're not really there yet in terms of actually mobilizing workers, as we saw, you know, really brutally in um, in the Am- Alabama Amazon vote. Um, we're, we're very, very, even though the rules are more favorable to us, but the, the, the actual workers are not right now. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work to do on that front, but I think that's the only way to break through this. As long as the, the working class is itself divided, disorganized and, 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 and weak, um, you know, you're going to have a politics that's primarily culture with, you know, a few arguments about tax rates on the side.
0: So I actually, uh, I, you know, agree with all of that and I, I want to shift gears slightly because I think when I had emailed you earlier in the week, I mentioned that I wanted to ask you some sort of general questions about history. Um, you're unfortunately or fortunately our resident historian, left-wing historian. Um, so I guess, um, and, and I think I had said this to you in my email, um, basically like a few years ago when Eric Foner's book gateway to freedom came out, I went to a talk by him and he said something through the course of his talk. He said something like, well, you know, like, I really respect and I like Howard Zinn, but I don't subscribe to his vision of history, which is that people rise up and then they get beaten down. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And and Foner, you know, was like, my view is actually like slightly more optimistic. And I thought that was so interesting. And I, you know, also love and respect Howard Zinn. Um, like many people, A People's History of the United States was sort of my, like, teenage, you know, entry into left-wing history. Uh, We all know that a people's history of the United States has spawned a million people's history of X, Y, and Z. Um, But I'm wondering, I mean, as somebody who's, you know, fully entrenched in the discipline of history, what are kind of the main schools of, I guess you would say, left-wing history that we see right now? And, like, where do you situate yourself within that?
2: Yeah. Good question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think, I mean, one way to look at Zinn is a, a sort of a, a slightly, this is, this is probably too cute. It doesn't line up perfectly, but one way to think about Zinn is that Zinn represents both the strengths and the weaknesses of a kind of new left approach to history, or at least one strand of that, that is, you know, intensely, you know, focused on, you know, social movements and the identifies, you know, kind of, you um, you know, social movements from below as the kind of source of any kind of movement toward, um, it, 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 you know, equality in in, in America, but is also um, is also sort of almost, uh, yeah, resoundingly pessimistic about the capacity for those movements to really attain uh, victories. And if I mean, uh, and and I think I, I think there are you know there are things to be learned from you know the way that Zinn you know treats a lot of these struggles. Absolutely. And, and, and to some extent, the way that Zinn recognizes the sort of remorselessness and the entrenched power of, of ruling class interests in this country's history. There's no gain saying that either. But I'm not of the Zinn school. I mean, and I think I'm, 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 I'm closer to Foner uh, because I think and, and, and I, it's not surprising that Foner would see it this way, um, because, you know, for me as a s- historian of the Civil War era, um, like 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 Eric the, uh, you know, this is where Zinn's interpretation, at least one place, I think there are others, the New Deal and to some extent the civil rights movement, falls apart uh, in that, um, you know, it, you know a, 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 in the narrative of, of, of Zinn's book, much like uh, actually older schools of sort of progressive history, you know, sort of, you know, non-Marxist progressives like, you know, Charles Beard, and to some extent, actually, in very old school, you know, Marxist and communist historians, uh, early accounts, uh, in, in, you know, in the sort of first half of the 20th century, um, uh, the Civil War was basically a conspiracy of industrial capitalism to sort of break apart a feudal remnant that um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a feudal remnant that had, it, it, you know, kind of attached itself to uh, the national state and needed to be shattered for uh, the forces of, you know, capitalist modernity to surge through the country. Um, uh, and emancipation was kind of an afterthought and and an accident. And you know, in Zinn's account, this you know, comes with much more emphasis on the struggles of enslaved people themselves, uh, and is sort of less about the sort of robotic working out of, uh, of, of sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, invincible economic forces from above. But both of those stories kind of rhyme. Whereas I think the story that, you know, Foner, would, Foner has told and the story that I would tell in, 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 you know, my work that I've, you know, some of it is published, some of it's coming out, like this Catalyst article, right, <laughs> on on anti-slavery, really identifies this broader Civil War era as a time of, you know, to be, um, to say, you know, uh, to, to use Frederick Douglass, I could call myself a Douglassist, about this as a time of struggle and progress as a time when actually mass democratic politics combined with social movement struggle uh in the anti-slavery the abolitionist and anti-slavery movement combined with struggle from below in the 1860s uh on the part of enslaved people actually produced a radical transformation in u.s history that was not simply about you know big capital calling the shots the process of emancipation as it happened uh sorry the rise of the republican party first of all the, the rupture of the union, the violent rupture of the union. Um, the process of emancipation on the ground and the 13th and 14th Amendments in particular—none of those things were scripted by capital uh, uh, in any way that capital in the 1850s and 60s would have wanted to script them. They were all, and they were all meaningful uh, historical victories. I think that the left should claim and own, not that they brought brought in the millennium or accomplished the revolution uh, in any in any final sense. Of course, it's struggle and progress, and then more struggle and some times you know defeat we've just been talking about an era of defeat the late 19th century was obviously another era of defeat that douglas himself lived through before he died so you know the ball moves forward the ball moves back uh what i resist in sort of the zin school of history is is the way in which so many of those moves seem to be almost pre-programmed by a certain kind of ideology uh and and there are other schools of sort of Um, I think popular sort of progressive and and liberal approaches to history now that aren't exactly zin like but I think share some of those same same defects and and sort of, uh, anyway, but I I know maybe you want to talk about that too.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, so, you know, relatedly, um, a phenomenon that I feel like I have been observing recently, and I'm sure it's not new, and I'm sure this crops up on the right as well as on the left, uh, but it's a tendency that I call, uh, you know, fake radical revisionist history, perhaps there's a more elegant academic term for it, which you can comment on later. Um, But it's basically the tendency to like latch onto a myth or latch onto a piece of history that is just not true at all. And I'll give a few examples. So lots of people on the left um, really like, or, you know, uh, have sort of uh, propagated this idea that the Black Panther Party uh, forced the government to uh, either uh, you know, in, like adopt or expand its free breakfast program. Um, and we actually talked about this when we had Amber Frost on the show. Um, there's no historical basis to this. Uh, obviously the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program was amazing. Uh, it, it fed a lot of kids, uh, but the federal free breakfast program was in existence long before and its expansion was well underway when the Panthers launched their program. Uh, but I think what people, why people gravitate to this is is because of course Hoover was, you know, watching the Black Panthers and uh, kind of identified the free breakfast program as something that he thought was uniquely dangerous. Uh, and then after the Black Panthers sort of, you know, brought out their program, uh, the U.S. government officially adopted an expansion of the the federal free breakfast program. But as I say, you know, it, it had been in the works before. Um, and just to use another example, um, a few years ago, a lot of, uh, you know, progressive Asian American activists uh, who wanted to sort of express su- support and solidarity for Black Lives Matter uh, were were saying, you know, um, uh, well, like we need to stand in solidarity with black people because black activists in the 60s fought for us to be here, basically, like they pushed the 1965 Immigration Act. Um, and again, that, you know, there are some strains of truth there, but that's just not true. Uh, the 1965 Immigration Act was this top down measure, which, you know very broadly was sort of adopted as, I guess, a geopolitical consideration. Um, You know, the US government at the time, like, wanted to look a little bit less racist. And so uh, that was one of the measures that they sort of put forward. Now, of course, during the 60s, you also have the Black Power Movement, or again, the Black Panthers, who are really interested in third world uh, liberation and third world solidarity. And that may have played, you know, some some role in shaping the culture. Uh, But reforming immigration was just not a plank of the civil rights movement. Um, and so I bring up these examples because I, you know, I actually feel a little uncomfortable like saying they're not true because I, I feel that they're very sort of dear to many quarter to, you know, a certain quarter of the left. Right. And I can see why, like they, they, I I think lots of people think that they're politically expedient. I think that they seem, you know, very evocative in some ways. Um, But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this trend or, you know, this sort of um, this sort of move toward, you know, fake radical history. Uh, If you've noticed this uh, and and like if you think there is any kind of expediency to this or like should should we try to get the record straight?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, in some ways, the, the trend that you're talking about is a little different from the one that I was that I was kind of thinking about uh, in terms of, you know, the, the the way that, you know, history, the policies of history seem to work kind of in the in the liberal and progressive imagination, more mainstream. I think those examples that you brought up are, you know, and maybe I'll come back to that. But those examples you brought up are kind of. Um, you know, they're, they're in some ways I'm less unsympathetic to them than I am to, um, to, to other forms of, of sort of, you know, historical mischaracterization in the sense that they're basically usable pasts that, you know, various activists, um, and various sort of activists and people engaged in political struggle are just, you know, plucking, you know, at will from the, the treasure chest of history to sort of advance their point. And well I don't think that that, I think that, you know, for one, on the left, we have responsibility, ability to be, uh, responsibility to be rigorous in our, in our, in our plucking and to hold, um, hold those, you know, those treasure coins of the light and say, wait a minute, did this really happen in the way that this happened? Because if it didn't, then you're suggesting, you know, that we go down, that, that, you know, in a sense, all we have to do is, is, is follow a strategy that actually didn't produce results. So I think we need to be rigorous intellectually about it, about thinking about our historical analogies. But in some ways, I'm less, um, I don't have such a big problem with various kinds of sort of overenthusiastic um, uses of kind of, you know, movement history to say, hey, wait a minute, um, we did this. You know, these activists did this then and we can do this now. And that 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 shows the power and possibility of, of, of social struggle, because I feel like the dominant trend in so many ways is actually moves in the other direction that sort of puts this big blanket of kind of continuity. And, you know, what, uh, you know, the historian James Oaks is called kind of racial consensus history overlays on top of all struggles and uh, and all struggle and progress in US history from slavery through to um, the civil rights movement. And in fact, actually sort of, sort of submerges any possibility of extracting either sort of lessons or inspiration or um, meaning from so many of those struggles, except as kind of, um, you know, heroic, noble, tragically doomed efforts um, that, you know, uh, to, to battle against uh, the sort of the white supremacist consensus that has governed everything from the beginning and always will. I mean, obviously, this is a, a, you see a version of this in the 1619 project to some extent, or at least some portions of that um of 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 that production but i think that that's a that's a kind of um you know political temperament that i think actually has become quite popular within certain strands of sort of mainstream liberalism because it works well both ideologically and materially with um, liberalism's insistence that you know a certain kind of moderate liberalism's insistence that like X and Y isn't possible—we're familiar with this in the Bernie camp. In you know, veterans of the Bernie campaign are familiar with that kind of logic. And I think it's really expanded to a kind of a big reading of American history in which that actually, um, you know, yeah, there are these sort of fake radical examples that you know some on the left in in little quadrants will will bring out to sort of rah rah. But I, I think the stronger impulse right now is actually to sort of. Uh, is is to sort of call up history primarily as a as a chronicle of of defeat retreat and and actually almost uh impossibility uh the kind of you know the the permanence of this of this sort of like four hundred year order in 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 the u s in particular uh and and the kind of the way in which current events present day struggles about wealth and power and You know, capitalism and police violence and criminal justice and everything in the news today are just simply sort of echoes of a historical process 400 years ago or 200 years ago that have already basically predetermined this. And, you know, I don't want to say that there's no power in that kind of history too, but I think on the left, we have to be really wary of this kind of originalism um, uh, and the way that, you know, the way that it, it sort of like disfigures and disempowers contemporary politics. To me, that's more dangerous than, um than sort of one off uh unrigorous uses of of sort of movement history which are not good you know uh, obviously we should we should get we should get the facts right but um but i think that you know in some ways that's 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 less of a problem than than this other this other tendency i would say mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and i'm sure you saw the thing with uh james Clyburn, um talking about fdr saying you know i don't want Biden to be like fdr uh wanted to be more like truman because you know truman was a anti-racist crusader, as we all know, but that was just a, an interesting moment of why he felt the need to like, you know, disassociate the legacy of FDR.
2: Right. That is, I mean, cause that is, I mean, it, again, it's, it, it does come down to these two big, you know, really three big movements in, you know, of, of major social, you know, in, if you will, revolutionary change in U.S. history, civil war era, the new deal era, and then the the sort of 60s civil rights era. And and yeah, and I think for certain figures, um, you know, of different ideological, you know, temperaments, the idea of kind of downplaying um, the or 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 um, even though I think there are counter tendencies. Like I said, I did point to that, you know, that buoy column actually was was heartening to see. Um, but I think there are other segments, of course, on the sort of liberal left that are that are significantly invested in you know undermining the New Deal as a sort of usable past in any sense for actually reactionary reasons in Clyburn's case to say that, you know, we, we would want Trumanism instead of Rooseveltism, um, you know, on civil rights grounds is just perplexing. Yeah.
0: So I think, um, my final question for you has to do with your own research. You had mentioned that you're writing or you have a catalyst article that's forthcoming on, uh, the mass politics of anti-slavery, uh, in the antebellum period. And I, like, you know, to bring up Eric Foner again, he always talks about how reconstruction is kind of a, a an era that the left should study for sort of lessons on, uh, <laughs> you know, not just ideology, but also strategy. Um, so give us the kind of quick and dirty of the anti-slavery movement and mass politics in that era and uh, what you think the left can kind of take, like, are there certain events or even publications or like people from that era that we should be looking at? And I ask specifically because of course um, abolition, uh, I mean, in the period you're looking at it's abolition of slavery, of course, but that is a hugely like, important and powerful uh, sort of movement that I think a lot of people kind of look to again and again. Uh, we hear the word abolition surfacing again now, of course, you know, people talk about abolishing ICE or, you know, abolishing prisons or the police. Um, so what can we learn about wh- what you've just written about?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is my other I guess this is the this is my, uh, to some extent, my other kind of historical analogy, my attempt at inspiration or usable past here instead of the Gilded Age to think about the, you know, the antebellum and Civil War era struggle uh, against the power of slavery. I mean, I think my, you know, the way that I see this history is that, you know, for the first and this is my first book is about this. Um, is for the first you know century of its existence basically or you know three quarter centuries of it, of its existence you know the national power of the united states was in the hands of, of the slaveholding class and this was a um you know obviously a a you know and we could I'm not going to get into the details of how that power was wielded uh, at the, you know, through the Democratic Party, through um, sort of certain provisions in the Constitution, et cetera. I mean, people are probably familiar with a lot of this stuff, but um, this was the slaveholding class was, you know, depended obviously on, you know, racialized chattel slavery of African Americans. It also uh, depended, uh, and identified itself on a as sort of holding on to a certain kind of class power. And the, uh, and the anti-slavery movement, when it emerged into mass politics in the 1850s, time and time again, identified the slaveholding class as a class and actually did operate, um, uh, through a certain kind of very conscious class politics, um, you know, identifying, um, the, the master class with, you know, um, you know, the Lords of the Lash alongside the Lords of the Loom, as Charles Sumner would talk about, and others talk about slaveholding capitalists, identifying the master class as a literal 1%, about 300,000 slaveholders. Uh, there were about 300,000 slaveholders in a republic of about 30 million people, um, you know, and they pointed this out again and again, that the way in which this, this sort of, the, this oligarchic class power had throttled the federal government was driving down the material prospects of, you know, northern workers, whether they're their capacity to sort of own property or their capacity to, you know, you know, earn higher wages uh, through a variety of means. They tied this kind of these kind of material issues to the, you know, the moral uh, injustice and criminality of slavery itself. Uh, And then ultimately, in the course of, uh, you know, winning a presidential election and touching off, you know, Southern uh, the Southern reaction, that struggle was joined by uh, in mass, um you know millions of uh of enslaved workers in the south uh you know hundreds of thousands of whom fought in the army that achieved their own liberation so this is to me you know a re- this is this is the most revolutionary moment in us history uh you know the american emancipation in global terms is probably second to Haiti, the the most revolutionary process that we know of in the broad 19th century world. And it was violent, it was sudden, it was uncompensated, and it produced a political system and a political order in which formerly enslaved people were uh, working in coalition with the ruling party almost immediately upon their emancipation. And in fact, were, you know, in some cases um, incorporated into the political system and in, in holding major positions of power within those societies in which they were formerly enslaved. That happened nowhere else. In some ways, it didn't even happen in Haiti where the post-revolutionary situation gave way to dictatorship very quickly. So this is a unique and and actually, you know, almost... Um, Uh, I don't want to say exceptional because that's a dangerous word uh, for American historians to use, but I think there is something exceptional about the Civil War era. And my, my feeling is that it was driven. We need to remember this was driven by a conscious political movement. This wasn't something that just sort of Happened because of you know various material thrumming's within um, within capitalism in the in the mid nineteenth century, and it sort of had to play out this way. Uh, the material conditions set the set the terms for what was operated it is for, for which in which the the political movements could operate. You know, as Marx says, you know we make our history, um, but not in the ways that we you know choose. And you know, so it's not like every option is on the table, but within um, within those material frameworks a conscious political movement the anti-slavery movement worked its way through social movements into mass politics took control of the government fought a you know had, had a had a brutal and bloody collision with its antagonists and produced a revolutionary outcome so Anyone who's interested in something like revolution, anyone who's interested in um, something like uh, major left-wing, you know, transformations in in politics, in in society, uh, massive redistributions of uh, of wealth, the power of democracy to sort of overcome the entrenched rule of class and property and and an oligarchic few, um, all of the in all of those ways, this era is incredibly rich Uh, as an incredibly rich resource for us to study. It doesn't have all the answers. In particular, uh, I don't think, despite the sort of class politics rhetoric uh, against the slaveholders of the 1850s, I don't think it actually provides a... a a window into, you know, contemporary working class struggle or labor or or the struggles of organized labor, which are so vital today. So it's not a one to one fit. Nothing ever is. But in terms of uh, particularly on the question of how democracy can be um, uh, uh, the field of democracy can be a site of struggle for major egalitarian change, uh, even revolutionary change, then, uh, you know, we need to study this for sure. Pretty good pitch.
0: <laughs> I actually have one last question. Can you actually recite the Gettysburg Address while drunk? That's something that producer Kale has accused you of. Um, confirm or deny?
2: I mean, I think it's kind of I, that. That was the first thing I did in my job interview. He <laughs> <laughs> took me out of the quad, and Sean Wilentz, you know, put a put a put an old pistol to my head and said, well, more "Gave score. you some <laughs>
0: shots." That, you know, that was it. it. Hard, cool.
2: only be for. Yeah, that part will only be
1: for patrons. Uh, we'll have to <laughs> pay for that one. <laughs>
0: um. Well, uh, I think that's pretty much all we have for you, Matt. Uh, we've kept you on for an hour, and I, you know, we could go on, but I think for now we'll we'll let you go. Um. But thank you so much for coming on to the Jacobin Show. Um. We'll have to have you back. Uh. I know you're a regular on this channel, but please rejoin us again.
2: Thanks, guys. Yeah, as as Kale pointed out, my. My, my total butchery of that Marx quote shows that I'm totally out of gas and need to eat dinner. Uh, <laughs> thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks Matt. Matt. We'll see you soon. I'm still a little disappointed
1: he does not know how to get us in a, another new deal, but it's all right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I guess that'll be for the next time he's on.
1: Yeah, that's his homework. Figure that <laughs> out for us, please, and uh, come back.
0: Well, actually... Um, of course, now it's time for you to answer some questions. Right. Uh, that that uh, one of them being, how do we get another new deal? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, how it's do time we for rebuild
1: the entire labor movement?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, it's time for labor, Paul, everyone. This is the segment on our show where Paul, uh, answers some question, any of a number of questions related to labor. If you have any questions about labor, be it labor history or labor organizing, please go ahead and throw those into the live chat or into the comments and Paul will answer them the next time he's on. Uh, but for today we have two questions. Um, let's bring up the first one. So... Uh, uh, um, uh, somebody from YouTube asks, are there laws that need to be passed to enable more worker co-ops to be formed? And should that be another front for labor to organize on? So this is a good question. Paul, you are usually going, going off about unions. What about co-ops?
1: So, yeah, I mean, worker co-ops or cooperatives are essentially employee owned companies, which can take the form of workers being members of like an employee stock ownership plans And the idea is that these co-ops would gradually challenge and overtake capitalist firms and be able to usher in a socialist economy. And while I'm not entirely dismissive of the positive roles worker co-ops can play, I don't think it's a viable strategy for socializing the economy or building up the power of workers within capitalism. Um, Worker co-ops within a capitalist system essentially mean that those workers become their own capitalists. They have ownership rights they mobilize their own fan- finances, they reinvest their surplus for their own advantage, and they are still forced to compete in the capitalist marketplace as, and with all the anti-social incentives that we as socialists know that entails. And we actually can look at some recent historical experiences that suggest that worker takeovers within a capitalist system don't always work out so well. So there was a wave of factory takeovers in Argentina after their 2001 financial crisis, And the government turned them into co-ops and the worker workers took over firms that were saddled with debt and that they were now responsible for. And they wound up having to put their own savings into the company or accept lower wages to deal with the fact that these companies had to be competitive. Uh, There was also the Chicago Republic windows and doors example in uh, 2008, which I think inspired a lot of the left where workers occupied the factory and took it over to prevent it from closing. I mean, today, Of the original 240 workers, only 17 remain, and due to competitive pressures, a lot of them pay themselves near or below the minimum wage. So I don't see any reason why worker co-ops can't easily be incorporated by the capitalist system. You know, a proliferation of worker-owned but still competing co-ops will not solve the problem of the need for massive economic planning in order to create a just society. And I think the enthusiasm for worker co-ops that pops up on the left from time to time comes from frustration and disillusionment with two things, the labor movement and the state. And I get it. The labor movement is in deep trouble. Unions right now may not seem like a viable vehicle for improving workers' lives. And with the state, the left entering and transforming the state is also very messy and difficult, and it throws up all kinds of challenges and contradictions. And so it feels to me like the emphasis on worker co-ops is kind of a way to sidestep these thorny questions. But unfortunately, you know, if we want to redistribute power and wealth to working people, there's no way we can sidestep them. Rebuilding the labor movement, whether in the form of reforming existing unions or organizing new workers, is a long term commitment that won't bear fruit overnight. And as we saw with the recent Amazon result, we often uh, ends in defeat. And the gains that are made in the labor movement and social movements need to be reflected in the state. We need to be able to win laws that change the balance of power in favor of workers and redistribute corporate profits to the public good and have more working people coming out of these movements in the state. And this is all part of giving workers more say and control over the economy and society, which is part of what the idea of worker co-ops is to do anyway. And so even properly supporting existing and future worker co-ops, I think requires big state action. Um, So again, I don't want to be entirely dismissive. I think there can be a role for worker co-ops in the broader socialist movement. I think worker co-ops could, you know, lend facilities as cultural and political spaces for left movements, you know, like coffee shops, bookstores, bars, places for public forums. It's like impossible to find public meeting space anywhere. Um, Or what if co-ops, you know, set aside for some of their revenue to help fund political organizing projects. But on its own, I don't think, um, you know, as a project of worker owned firms that are still forced to complete in the market, I don't think it can be a central strategy to replace building the trade movement or um, taking on the state. So that's my that's my take on the co-ops.
0: All right. Labor Paul coming in with a slightly contrarian take on worker (laughs) co-ops. You got. You got to remember, you're talking to a union man through and through. So
1: I, I wish I could see the live chat, but there's probably <laughs> a lot of thoughts. But I um, could generate more questions. So
0: indeed, yeah. If you if you have dissenting opinions, follow up questions, please put them in the comments or the live chat, and perhaps Labor Paul um, will take them up next time. Um, all right, let's move on to the next question. Uh, so <clears throat> another user from YouTube uh, writes didn't closed shop unions encourage even more discrimination? Please correct me if I'm wrong. Paul, this is 100% up your alley.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and this actually gets back to something we covered on the show a while ago about the difference between an open shop and a closed shop. And so an open shop is a workplace where you are not automatically enrolled in the union as a product of being there. You'd have to voluntarily sign up to be in it. And a closed shop means that as soon as you become an employee, You are automatically part of the union. And so when this originally came up, I argue that even though some will say that having an open shop forces unions to organize better, I still think it's better overall to have closed shops. And having a closed shop doesn't prevent a union from doing good organizing. And and now what I think this listener is getting at, and I apologize if this is wrong, is discrimination in the building trades. And the employment structure is a little different there, but not necessarily because it's a closed shop. You have closed shops in other elements of the private sector as well. But I think this gets at an important point to cover. Um, you know, The building trades have a reputation for being discriminatory. And this history is kind of long and complicated. And to be clear, by building trades, I mean construction work like electricians, carpenters, iron workers, plumbers, et cetera. And so, you know, this work is part of what the so-called skilled trades. And these workers were in unions of the American Federation of Labor, which for a long time had explicit policies forbidding Black people and women from being members of their unions. And in these unions, you need to join the union and complete an apprenticeship program to get the work. Now, even after many of these unions officially stopped discriminating, it was very hard for large numbers of people of color to break in. And the reason is, is that you have new workers being recruited out of the social circles of the existing set of workers. So the work, you know, the workers are recruiting their cousins, their friends, their sons, their nep- nephews into the trades. And even even if they are not deliberately discriminating, their social circle is likely to be white because our society uh, has been and still is very segregated. And this kind of re- reproduces itself. And so what's it what do we do about this? And First, I think we need to make sure we talk about this with a degree of nuance. Um, with the trades, you're talking about many different unions, many different kinds of jobs, and each union is different in its history and the amount of diversity in their ranks. And this can also vary widely by location. So like in New York City, for example, the demographics of the trades are actually pretty diverse and representative of the city, not so much in other places. Um, and I'm going to go to Baird Rustin. We had a lot of interesting things to say about this. Baird Rustin, the Great civil rights activist. Um, and his take was that, you know, it's hard to advance affirmative action measures in a time of economic scarcity. And of course, we know this economic scarcity is manufactured, but, you know, w- when those existing members of the trades feel that their jobs are under threat, um, you know, it's going to be harder to advance those measures. And I think this can only be addressed by vastly expanding the pool of employment or a massive jobs program that creates the need to bring more workers into these jobs and into these training programs and into these unions. Um, You know, so in other words, you, you can address this problem during a period of big economic growth. And in our vision, this growth is stimulated by the federal government and the public sector. And, you know, there's a lot more to say on this, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. But to come back to the original question, I don't know, I don't think closed shops inherently lead to more discrimination Again, I think your your question was kind of targeted at the building trades, um, but you know, in general, closed shops apply, apply to many uh, private sector jobs and private sector unions that aren't just the building trades.
0: Thanks, well said. The yeah, problem of labor <laughs> is solved. Uh, exactly. Sorry, I-, I was trying to like think of whether I had anything like smart or pithy to add <laughs> on to that, um, but I, I think you covered it. Um, I I do think I. I mean, I I guess I have sort of a follow-up question, and this is something we sort of get at on the show in, like, a couple different ways pretty much all the time, but I do feel like, you know, the labor movement historically has not been perfect, especially on issues of race. Um, it isn't perfect now, but I... I still think it's worth saying that it is one of the most effective vehicles for ending discrimination, or for ameliorating discrimination, and for uh, upward mobility for historically marginalized groups. Like, I just think I, I, you know, and I'm not saying that you know the the um, person who posed the question is uh, countering any of that, uh, but I do think it's always worth saying that because I I, I think that you know, or at least much like we were saying earlier, there's a lot of talk about the ways in which the new deal was imperfect or even bad. Some, some people might say, um, I, I just think it's worth reiterating that.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, and, and just so people know, you know, when I was in my, an, as an undergrad, I was involved in a campaign in Philly, long story short, essentially, you know, and uh, revolved around discrimination in the trade. So, you know, it exists, it, it, mm-hmm. it is a thing, but, again, I think there needs to be just a lot of nuance there because I said, I think it gets to be this trope of like, oh, building trades, there's, there's no black workers in building trades. And it's just like, just look around obviously <laughs> in in one sense. Um, and again, like it can vary so much, um, but you know, not to get too off on track, but um, an interesting thing Bear Rustin also wrote about is, you know, Nixon, if people have heard about the Philadelphia plan, um, he kind of tried to cynically use this issue to kind of divide labor and civil rights in the early seventies, where he put out this plan around, you know, we're going to attack discrimination in the building trades. Nixon of all people is doing this. Um, but, you know, he, he did it in a way where it wasn't actually doing what would need it to be done. And Rustin's point was like, you can only do this again, if you expand employment, if you actually have a massive jobs program, that's going to hire me more people and, and train more people And But Nixon was very clever about using this kind of as a cynical, like, wedge issue, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I'm not saying if someone brings up discrimination in the trades, they're using it as a wedge issue. But, um, you know, it gets, it's, you know, complicated. And I think it has to be solved in the context of of just a broader jobs program that is creating more, you know, more jobs for everyone.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what further complicates the issue is, you know, I, like, probably anybody watching the Jacobin show is not bringing up discrimination within unions or within the building trades in a cynical way, but we know full well that there are members of the democratic party elite who are bringing that up in a cynical way. I mean, we've seen it time and time again, we've talked about it on the show. Um, And so, yeah, again, like you said, just approaching the issue with uh, like pretty high degree of nuance and kind of, um, you know, I guess, hold it, what you said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I lost my train of thought.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, thanks, Paul, for for the great labor, Paul segment. Again, if anybody listening has any. F- you know, follow up questions or any new questions that you want to send over to Paul, please feel free to put those in the chat or put them in the comments. And we will prepared for
1: like five co-op questions next time. Yeah, exactly. uh (laughs) Yeah. Next,
0: the next episode will be all of the follow up co-op questions. Um, So (laughs) on that note, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you next week.
1: See everyone.